I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad, is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor, and meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You 
gods of wedlock, and you, Lucina, guardian of the nuptial couch, and you, who taught Typhus to guide his new ship to the conquest of the seas, and you, grim ruler of the depths of ocean, and Titan, who portioned out bright day to the world, and you, who shows your bright face as witness of the silent mysteries. Oh, three-formed Hecate and you gods by whose divinity Jason swore to me. To whom Medea may more lawfully appeal, you chaos of endless night, you realms remote from heaven, you unhallowed ghosts, you lord of the realm of gloom, and you, his queen, won by violence but with better faith, with ill-omened speech. I make my prayer to you. Be present, be present, you goddesses who avenge crime, your hair foul with writhing snakes, grasping the smoking torch with your bloody hands. Be present now, such as once you stood in dread array beside my marriage couch. Upon this new wife, destruction bring, destruction on this father-in-law and the whole royal stock. Hi, hello. Welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv. Diving into Roman tragedy for the very first time? Because it's Medea. We are still deep in what I am calling, you know, just Roma month, but which is in honor of August, you know, Augustus, slash an attempt to keep his ghost happy. Not really. I don't really do the keeping Roman emperors happy thing, but regardless of their ghosts and whether or not they have the same weird Zuckerberg-esque hairstyles that their living bodies had, really it just, it, it seems like a fun theme to try out for August, the month named for Augustus, the first emperor of Rome and man with a super odd haircut. But thank fuck, we don't need to cover too much Roman history <laughs> to get into today's play. Because, well, I'm, I am still me. Uh, and thus, in deciding on my first ever Roman play, I just went with Medea, because obviously. Still, as obvious as it might be, Seneca's Medea is also a play that has been brought up to me by so many guests as kind of like a go-to, I guess, a good introduction to Seneca as a tragedian, and apparently it's seriously violent. I mean, who doesn't love that, right? I'm excited. So today we are diving right into that play, and in my usual style, I'm going to be reading it as I write these scripts, so you're going to be learning along with me what's happening. Not that I don't know Medea pretty well, and probably so do you at this point. And fortunately, I will also be speaking with a guest, Lauren Ginsberg, who will join us to talk about Seneca as a tragedian and all about his version of Medea. And yes, I've already warned Lauren that I will be comparing it to Euripides' Medea because I am physically incapable of not doing so and have no desire to even try, frankly. I'm nothing if not honest about my love for that tragedian and my desire to defend him at all possible opportunity. But well, that's for another time. That episode will air once this series on Seneca's Medea is finished. For now, we've got to get in to this alternate Medea, this Roman Medea. 
But of course, it all still takes place in Greece. Don't get me wrong. But before that, just a quick reminder for any locals that if you're anywhere near Victoria, British Columbia, I will be doing a book signing at the Indigo at Mayfair Mall (laughs) on August 26th from 12 to 2 p.m. Come by with your books or buy some there and I'll sign away and or I'll just say hi and I will even have some leftover merch with me to give away to the first people that I see who want it. It'll be fun. Come make me look fancy and important in the mall where I worked at West 49 in the year 2007. Please. Okay, thanks. Time to dive into yet another distinct version of everyone's favorite righteously murderous witch, Medea. Do you think I could, like, set a record with how many podcast episodes might be dedicated to one person? And that person is the woman who famously killed her children. (laughs) This doesn't say anything about me. I don't know what you're talking about. This is episode 224. Who knew Medea could be even angrier, even more bloodthirsty? Seneca's Medea, part one. One of the translations I'm using today by everyone's favorite translator of the Odyssey, Emily Wilson, opens the introduction with the line, quote, Seneca's tragedies are intense. That is probably the one thing I knew about Seneca before going into this and his tragedies. And also one of the main reasons that I'm excited to read this one, not to mention one of the main reasons that I'm happy to deviate from my beloved Greek tragedians. I say tragedians, I just mean Euripides. The intensity and the Medea of it all, like that is what it took to sell me. Now, I'm I'm referring to Emily Wilson's translation primarily, uh, for now at least, but long passages quoted, like the one at the top of the episode, will be slightly adapted from the public domain translation by Frank Justice Miller. And by adapted, I just mean I like to do you all and me a favor uh, by changing words like ye and thou and didst to words that we actually use in this 21st of centuries, C.E. As always, everything is listed in the episode's description. Seneca, whose full name was Lucius Aeneas Seneca, was born somewhere in the first years of, what what do we call it when the dates that we've assigned to history switch between BCE and CE? I don't know, the first years of the common era, I suppose. But let's not go forgetting that even saying that still leaves all of human history's dating system arbitrarily assigned to the life of one random dude. Still, that's when he was born. Seneca, I mean, not the random dude. Somewhere in the first few years of that switchover between 1 and 4 CE. He was born in Spain, too, very much part of the Roman Empire, but not particularly close to Rome. He lived during a particularly tumultuous time, too. Without having to dive into Roman history, I'll just say that he lived during the reigns of the emperors Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. Fortunately for all of us, two of those names are famous enough that I think you get the picture. It must have been really something to live through the reigns of two of the most famously awful Roman emperors. I had no intention of going even this deep into his actual background, yet here I am telling you that Seneca's older brother became the governor of southern Greece, and even gets a shout out in the Bible, for something or other that I don't particularly care about, uh, but had Christian implications, apparently. Uh, And his younger brother was the father of Lucan, who famously wrote The Civil War, 
a text I was supposed to read in university but managed to successfully avoid while still passing the class. Yes, this episode will feature many references to my general disinterest of Rome, uh, which has indeed spanned my entire classics career. Still, quite the important family. They were wealthy and well-respected, but even still, Seneca really made this career for himself, taking the Roman tragedy world by storm. I assume I just want to use that phrase. Seneca was a Stoic philosopher, too, uh, but much like my general disinterest in Rome, I don't particularly care for the philosophers either, uh, Greek or otherwise. So that's about all I'm going to say about that. That's a lie, actually. More is going to come up later, but it's going to be brief. Maybe one day someone will come on the show and convince me to actually care about ancient philosophy, but today is not that day. For now, the important aspect of this part of his life when it comes to his tragedies is the idea that, like, at least according to this edition's introduction, because that's all I've read, Stoic philosophy, quote, believed that the universe is controlled by a reasoning power, God or nature, fate, associated with primordial fire, and that causes everything that happens. That and that such fire emanated through the souls of both humans and animals. They also had a lot of complex views on emotions, not that they shouldn't be experienced, but more that if I understand it, the most commonly experienced emotions are, are based in falsities, and it's more about finding the truths within and experiencing those rather than the false feelings of daily life. Let's not think too hard about it. Seneca specifically, though, was seriously concerned with one emotion, anger, and the ways that such a strong emotion can distort one's rational judgment. He wrote a treatise on anger and another on mercy. And well, if you can believe it, that interest in examining anger and mercy is going to be particularly relevant in Medea. Finally, while I can't go too deep into the details of his history and the history that was happening all around during, you know, the reigns of those very specific emperors, there are bits that are relevant and important. The dating of his plays appears to be uncertain, but it seems as though most, all but one, were composed before Nero took power. Rather, they were composed during the reigns of either Tiberius, Caligula, or Claudius. This is relevant because, while a lot of his plays center around ideas of tyranny, concepts that he would have been more than aware of living during that particularly tumultuous time in Rome's history, like, if one man's life can span four emperors, like, you know a lot is happening. And as the introduction to this edition says, quote, as a provincial who rose to enormous influence and who suffered exile as well as enjoying great wealth and prestige, he knew how quickly fortune can change, how easy it is for emperors to behave in cruel and savage ways, and how dependent people may be on the whims of those in power. mentioned lately that Ovid, Ovid also wrote a play about Medea and that it's lost and that that is one of the biggest travesties in Roman literature. Anyway, that's a thing. Uh, but thankfully, we do have Seneca's. <laughs> now, Seneca is the only surviving Roman tragedian, but I think it's well we remember that there would have been an existing tradition of Roman Medea through the play by Ovid at least when Seneca was writing this. 
we can all just imagine, wonder, dream about what Ovid's version might have been like. What would a Davidian play even look like, you know? Like, we don't even have a play of his to compare, let alone the Medea. It's heartbreaking. And until someone invents a time machine that won't break history as we know it, at least we can read Seneca's in its place. Now, I wrote all of that before having read any Seneca, and let me just say, frankly, this play is great. But we'll get there. Now, remember... Because this play was written in Latin by a Roman, it will be using some of the Roman names for the gods. I have a page on my website, it's linked in the description of this episode, uh, that reminds you who's who if you need it. But thinking back to last week's episode where I talked about how, while some gods of Rome correspond perfectly to Greek, essentially adopted by the Romans as is, there are others that don't quite fit. This translation, because it is recent, recognizes that, whereas a lot of the older ones just didn't, um, particularly because this is, you know, a Roman writing of a Greek myth. For instance, Hera is called Juno because Juno is basically Hera. It's fine. But Athena is called Athena because the Greek Athena is not the same as the Roman Minerva, despite what some very old school translations will have you believe. Now, when it's relevant to, you know, divide between the Roman and Greek myths and their pantheons, I might remind you of changes like that, mostly just because it's interesting. But we're going to get into the play, I promise. Let's just first situate ourselves, though, shall we? Now, apologies to those listeners who, like me, have the story of Medea and Jason nearly memorized by this point. I'm going to give a quick reminder of where we find ourselves in the grand scheme of their story, you know, for those who might need it. A man named Peleus has taken over what is called, in this version, just all of Thessaly. But that throne rightfully belonged to everyone's favorite dirty dishrag, Jason. Peleus told Jason that he'd return the throne to him if Jason brought him the Golden Fleece from Colchis. Jason assembled his team of Argonauts, not yet called that because they're named for the ship that they sail on, the Argo, and off they went to Colchis. There was much adventure along the way. You can listen to my Jason and Medea episodes for all of that, or even my reading of the Argonautica. I've linked to a Spotify playlist in this episode's description. It's got everything. They got the fleas from Colchis with the express and important help of Medea, the witch princess there, who betrayed her family for Jason and fled the city with him, killing her brother, Absyrtus, along the way in a successful effort to distract her father, You know, by flinging her brother's body parts over the side of the ship. No problem. It facilitated their escape. They return to Greece and we flash forward many years. They've been married all this time, Jason and Medea. But now Jason, while Jason is about to be Jason, he's decided he wants a new wife. (laughs) And he's planning to leave Medea. Or he kind of already has. You know, this barbarian princess from the east who is completely beholden to her Greek husband and all that that gets her. We open with a speech from the woman witch herself. It's what I recited at the top of the episode. Medea calls out the gods that Jason invoked when he married her, in whatever way he did. Juno and Athena, Neptune and Titan, Hecate even. But then she calls to the gods that she knows are more likely to help her, as it stands now. Dark gods, chaotic gods, like, well, chaos. Gods of the underworld, of darkness and despair. She calls upon the Furies, quote, Punishers of sinners, wild in your hair, with serpents running free, holding black torches in your bloody hands. 
She speaks to the Furies, recalling when they'd come to her years earlier, standing around her marriage bed with Jason. Never a good sign. And then, while not even 20 lines into the play, Medea says to the Furies or to the audience or both, simply, quote, kill his new wife, kill her father and all the royal family. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to like this, Medea. And yes, I know that that must say something about me, but God's a murderously furious woman in the ancient world just fascinates me to no end. Medea shifts from announcing her plans to, you know, straight up kill the woman that Jason plans to marry and her entire family to wondering what she might do to the man himself. Because, well, what's worse than death, she asks. And what's worse than death for Jason is life with nothing. She wants him to live in fear, poor and alone, a wandering guest that no one wants to host. She says, quote, let him want me as a wife and want the worst I could pray for. Children who resemble both their parents. This Medea is diving right the fuck in. She speaks of her vengeance, her plans. She asks herself why she's even bothering to speak of it all? To complain about her lot. Will she not actually go through with it? Quote, I will hurl the torches from their hands, the light from heaven. She calls to her grandfather, the sun itself, asking if he's still there, still riding in his chariot through the sky. She asks for power, the ability to harness for herself those fiery horses. She wants Corinth to burn up in the heat of the sun for nothing to be left of it. But of course, that's after, quote, I have to take the torch to the marriage room myself. After the prayers, I will be the one to kill the victims on the altar. She addresses her own soul, asking if it's still there, asking it to give up any fears that she might still have, to return to what she was back home in Colchis, the cruel home where she was raised to be just as cruel. But even that, she thinks, isn't enough. She was raised cruel, certainly, but she wasn't a different woman then. Now she's given birth. She's bigger, badder, stronger, and due to all of that, her crimes, too, should be bigger, badder, stronger. And fuck, this translation, it's wonderful. And so the last lines of Medea's opening speech, this first speech of the entire play, are, quote, The tale of your divorce must match your marriage. How should you leave your man? Enough delay. A family formed by crime must be broken by more crime. <laughs> yeah, I can see why people have told me to read this play. I get it now. <laughs> I just wanted to remind myself of how Euripides' play opens too, whether it even remotely resembles this kind of opening. Just like this immediate pouring out of the fury and this murderous, horrible plans. But no. And it makes sense that it doesn't, because in, in keeping with the tradition of Greek tragedy... It opens with more of a recap on what's happened. It's Medea's nurse who has the first speech in Euripides, speaking of all that's led up to that moment. Of course, Medea does something kind of similar here in Seneca, but gods, where even Euripides kept it like a little tame, <laughs> Seneca does nothing of the sort. 
His Medea gives even fewer fucks. She's even more angry, even more hungry for the blood of those who have wronged her. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
The chorus sings of a wedding. They sing an epithalamium, literally a song in celebration of a wedding. That is what immediately follows Medea's murderous opening speech, and I am just so fucking here for it. What a juxtaposition. The chorus sings to the gods. They ask them to bless the wedding. All the gods of the sky and the sea, they sing of the necessary sacrifices. A white bull for Jupiter, a snowy cow that's never been yoked for Juno, a lamb for Pax, a Roman goddess of peace, the goddess who restrains Mars. They sing of the bride's beauty, that it surpasses that of all the brides of Athens and the Spartan women too, or specifically, because this line is so good, quote, the women who exercise like boys by the mountains of Tagetis, by the city without a wall. That's the Spartans. It's just so good. She's more beautiful than Boeotian women, too, they say, and the women of all the rest of the Peloponnese. And well, if the bride is beautiful, the groom is her equal. The chorus sings of Jason's beauty. Yeah, he's hot as fuck, apparently. They say that if he was to be judged on his looks alone, Jason would beat out Bacchus, Apollo, Castor, and Pollux. High fucking praise indeed. It explains a lot about Jason, too. Beautiful people can get away with a lot of bullshit that the rest of us cannot. It certainly checks out with that one. They sing so much of Creusa, the name given to Jason's soon-to-be wife in this version, and her beauty, that it's, it's leaving me wondering what kind of parallels exist in Greek tragedy. Like It feels almost foreign reading this type of over-the-top praise of a woman's looks and how she'll behave as a wife. It's insightful, that's for sure. The chorus tells us that, quote, when this girl takes up her place in the women's dance, her beauty, hers alone, outshines them all. They're fucking hot for Creusa, and they are hot for Jason. But this chorus singing a celebratory wedding song to the new couple is not going to leave out Jason's history. No, they're going to celebrate his escape. They sing of Jason, quote, now torn away from your barbarian marriage, lucky man, take hold of this Corinthian girl. This girl's family has given their consent, they sing, unlike that barbarian woman's father. Their celebratory song ends with, quote, But a woman who marries a stranger running away from her homeland, let her go to the silent shadows. This is blunt hyper-aware of Medea and her relationship with Jason. There's no pretending it was anything else. They are open about it. Jason is escaping a bad marriage to a barbarian woman who never deserved him to begin with. They're literally celebrating her fall, her fading off into no one cares where. And while Medea seems to be able to hear all of this, when the chorus has finished their song, Medea takes up again, speaking more of Jason's cruelty, questioning how it is that he could do any of this, abandon her in a foreign country after all she did for him. Not to mention, does he not fear her? <laughs> does he not remember everything she did for him? Quote, does he believe my evil powers so lost? She speaks again of all that she could do, all that she wants to do to get her revenge. She notes that, oh, wouldn't it be nice if he had a brother, since she'd killed her own just to save Jason's life? That would be a fitting punishment. 
But no, he does, however, have a soon-to-be wife. Medea recalls all that she's done, the crimes she's committed for Jason, stealing the pride of her father's kingdom, the golden fleece, murdering her brother before her father's own eyes, scattering his body parts into the sea. She recalls how she killed Peleus, the man who'd stolen Jason's kingdom, how she cooked him in a bronze pot. She notes, and I like to imagine she's laughing here, something dark and twisted that she wasn't even mad when she did all of this. She was just driven by her love for him. She shifts, though, to seemingly no longer fully blaming Jason for his actions. He's being forced to do this, forced to marry Creusa by her father, the king, Creon. He is the one to blame. She wants to spare Jason now, it seems. She, she wants him back? No. It's Creon who's causing all of this tragedy, ripping her children away from their mother. Quote, let him be hunted down. May he alone pay as he deserves. I will heap deep ashes on his house. Silence! Medea isn't alone. Her nurse is there, and it seems she's been listening to all of this. Listening to Medea's ranting and raving, her lust for blood and revenge, and finally, she Silence! She wants Medea to be quiet, to, to hide her bloodlust. Quote, If one can bear deep wounds with patient, quiet endurance and a mellow heart, one can get payback. Medea and her nurse go back and forth. Her nurse is trying to get her to calm down, to see sense, and maybe consider being just like a tiny bit less murderous in how she's speaking about, you know, the princess and her new husband. <laughs> Medea, though, nah, she is not having that. And when her nurse reminds her that, well, she doesn't really have anyone or anything left, so, like, maybe she shouldn't try to make things worse for herself, you know, reminding her that her friends from home, her, her relationship with her family and Colchis, like, all of that is gone, Medea says, quote, Medea still survives. Here you behold the sea, the earth, sword, flame, the gods, and thunder. Translation, I'm a fucking witch goddess princess barbarian, and I will absolutely fuck up the people who have wronged me. Medea is ready to fight for what she believes is right, what she wants, even if, well, it means just being a hint murderous. The nurse tries to suggest, like, maybe Medea should be fearful of what she's getting herself into. Like, she should fear the king of Corinth, right? <laughs> nah, Medea says. My father was a king. What, what about weapons? Do you fear those? No, I don't fear any soldier born from this earth. <laughs> fine, the nurse concedes. But you'll die. That's fine, Medea replies. But you're a mother? <laughs> yeah, Medea says, quote, by you-know-who. <laughs> no matter what the nurse says to Medea, she's not going to change her mind, not going to feel the need for revenge any less than she does now. And anyway, it's, it's time for Creon to join the stage. Now this Creon, remember, is the king of Corinth and father to Creusa, Jason's new wife. It's another Creon, not the one of Thebes and Oedipus fame. And if you're confused at all about Creusa's name, because I think in the past I've used versions that call her Glauca, it's just always been a bit, like, hotly debated which name to use for this character. Don't think too much about it. 
But anyway, Creon really makes himself known on the stage. He walks on, takes one look at Medea, and says, quote, Medea, poisonous child of Kolki and Aetes, have you not yet got yourself away from my kingdom? <sighs> not one to mince words, this king. Why in the fuck are you still here? <laughs> is all he has to say to Medea. He speaks and, well, he seems to like be speaking both to her and not to her at all. He's talking to her and about her. He's planning to have her killed if she isn't going to leave. He guesses she wants to hurt him, that she's a threat to him. He worries so much that he directs his guards to keep her away from him. Meanwhile, Medea's just like, excuse you, but what exactly have I done that warrants exile? He doesn't really have an answer besides to point out that she needs to submit to him, submit to those more powerful than her, which she's like, yeah, whatever, I'm going to go home. But the man who brought me here should be the one to take me there. Oh, no, Creon says that uh, my decision is mine. It's made. Jason's not leaving. He's reminding her that she needs to leave and she needs to do it alone. He does, though, give Medea at least the chance to speak her mind to plead her case. I don't think anyone believes he will change his tune about her, but she's being given the time to speak. And so she does. She speaks of power and justice, of unjust and arrogant rulers seizing power for their own. She speaks of authority, everything she learned in her own royal home, all the lessons she learned from being the daughter of Aetes, famously tyrannical king of Colchis. And oh, she learned a lot by being the daughter of Aetes. She speaks of her home, her place as a descendant of the sun itself. She speaks of her homeland, even making the connection between Colchis and the Scythians, the Amazons, speaking of fearless women warriors surrounding her. Medea speaks of her life in Colchis, how she was sought after by suitors who now she seeks. She speaks of fortune and fate. And of course, she speaks of everything she did for Greece when she saved Jason and the Argonauts, when she helped them succeed in their quest. Quote, I am their savior. And then she reminds everyone of all the heroes that were on that ship, all the heroes that she helped and saved. People like Orpheus and Castor and Pollux, people like the sons of Boreas, all the men on the Argo. And that, quote, their leader, I pass by. No thanks are due for him. No debt is owed. I brought back all the rest for you. Just him for me. This Medea seems a little bit more attached to Jason, like still in love with him in an interesting way. But then, most importantly, she says, quote, I will confess, but this is one my own crime. The Argo's safe return. If she'd remained at home in Colchis, if she'd stayed away from Jason like her father wanted to, if she'd remained a virgin, Medea says, then all of Greece would have been lost. You, Creon, your son-in-law would have died in the fiery jaws of a bull. So, she says, quote, 
Let fortune press what charge she will upon me. To have saved such heroes needs no saying sorry. Whatever prize I won from all my crimes is in your hands. Condemn me if you wish, but give back my sin. She finishes by telling Creon that all she wants is to stay in the land of Corinth. She doesn't care where, he can give her a hovel, some dark corner, distant, any place where she can live with her pain without having to leave. Gods, this Medea knows what she's doing. She knows how to manipulate, but with the truth, it's all true. Where would any of them have been if she'd let Jason die in Colchis? If she had let all the Argonauts die? Well, the answer's for another day. Well, nerds, holy fucking shit. Am I right? This play is something else and I cannot wait to get further into it. Now, if I'm being honest, normally I would make sure to refer to more than one translation of this play. I always do. I even had recommended translations from our upcoming guest and Michaela, but I couldn't find any of them online and I was in a rush. And instead I found this translation. It's by Emily Wilson. And I know she's great. And well, it was also super cheap, which is not something I would normally prioritize because often that means that they're like old and outdated. But oh no, not this one. All to say, I don't know how this translation follows the original Latin. And I don't know how Latinists, people far smarter than I about this, uh, feel about it. But it's been so fucking enjoyable for me to read that I'm just going to go with it. We're sticking with this one. I've fallen in love with it completely because lines like, quote, how should you leave your man the same way you married him? Enough delay. A family formed by crime must be broken by more crime. It's, just, it's too good. Now, I'm sure there is so much to say about how this story is translated into Seneca's time and, you know, the world that he's writing in. We're talking like nearly 500 years after Euripides' Medea, the play that made her story as famous as it was in the ancient world. And, you know, certainly something that Seneca would have consulted, let alone the fact that Euripides was writing about a myth that was hundreds of years old by his time. But it's also important to note that the Argonautica by Apollonius, the most famous surviving Greek version of that, you know, the epic story, would also be something that Seneca would have known of. Whereas, it came long after Euripides wrote his Medea. Now, this was probably a bigger, more important myth by the time of Seneca, you know, than it was for Euripides. So he can play around more with the implications of the Argo itself, like the heroes on it, just as Medea's done, you know, in that last speech. And of course, there's all the Rome of it all to consider when looking at, you know, what this version is focusing on. For instance, like, I'm pretty sure divorce was more of a real thing in Rome. And so it seems to, you know, be a little bit more deliberate in this case. Like, Jason is leaving Medea in a legal sense. Whereas the major issue in Euripides is more that she wasn't Greek at all. And so their marriage kind of wasn't particularly legal to begin with. But 
because I'm not familiar enough with ancient Rome, let alone during Seneca's time, we're going to leave some of those points to my conversation with Lauren Ginsburg. Let's let an expert uh, talk about the implications of Seneca's time and how they affect Medea's story. But next week, more of that story. And boy, am I excited. Now, last week, I was so fucking out of it uh, that I didn't even remember to include a review. So back to it. As always, here's a review from one of you amazing listeners. Thank you all so much for reviewing the show. It means like the whole fucking world to me, honestly. And I seriously can't say that enough. This one comes from India, too, from a user called, and what a great handle, Wandering Mutant 879 The best way to get into Greek mythology. Greek mythology with Liv's humor and feminist interpretation sprinkled all along is all my nerdy soul could ever ask for. Keep going. You don't know how much of a pleasure it is to hear you talk. To the point where my only motivation to go to college is that I can listen to Myths Baby podcast when I walk back to the metro station. So please keep going. Love and support from India. Thank you so much. That's a lovely review and I'm so glad I'm keeping you entertained enough to go to college. To the rest of you listeners, if you haven't already, consider leaving me a five-star review on Apple and maybe I will read it on here because I love them and you're all the best. And honestly, they help with the show a lot, like a huge amount. And not only when it comes to just my own self-worth, they help with that though too, a lot. Unfortunately, all I have access to is Apple reviews, but if you happen to have another place to review the show, like please do. And please feel free to send me a screenshot of that review via email mythsbaby at gmail.com because I'm more than happy to read reviews from elsewhere. I just don't know where else they might exist without someone telling me. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians, perhaps more colloquially known as the assistant producer. The podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron. we will get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. I am Liv, and I love this shit. I don't want to say that Seneca is, you know, selling me on Rome, because let's be honest, he's not. But he sure is selling me on Senecan tragedies of Greek myth. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including... Actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. 
It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Summon your anticipation for an all new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.